This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to Ohio V, the world. An Ohio History Podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everybody. It's episode nine, Ohio vs. Annexation, and it may be cold here in the Buckeye State, but today we're going to be heading out to Hawaii, the 50th state, the Aloha State. We're going to be talking about the conquest of Hawaii, the, the overthrow of the queen and the, and the kingdom of Hawaii in 1893, and its later annexation by the United States in 1898. We're talking with an uh, author from Australia, Stephen Dando Collins, and we'll be talking about his book, Taking Hawaii, How 13 Honolulu Businessmen Overthrew the Queen of Hawaii with a Bluff. Great book. I've read it twice. Uh, Stephen was good enough to get on Skype with us um, in Australia where he lives. We had to do it. Uh, it's kind of the opposite time, so we, we got up bright and early uh, and, did a, and did a really fun interview with Stephen. Great author. Um, there's a link to the book in the notes. You can get it on Audible as well as Barnes & Noble or Amazon. And it's fantastic when we'll we be talking with Stephen about the Taking Hawaii and those 13 businessmen called the Committee of Safety. And one of those members was a man named John Imaluth, a businessman uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, moved to Hawaii in his 20s uh, and rose to be a very powerful and rich man and was part of that infamous overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii, a really dark moment in America's imperial past. And though we might be the only Ohio history podcast out there, we're really an American history show and using Ohio as a jumping off point. And we'll use Ohio's connection to John Imaluth from Cincinnati as one of those members of the Committee of Safety. Our beer today is Winter Trip. Uh, it's a Braxton Brewing Company, one of my favorite beers. Um, and it's a sour, a Berliner Weiss. And it actually is a pineapple beer. It's in Covington, Kentucky, just over the river from Cincinnati. Um, but again, one of our favorite beers. And since we're talking about a guy from Cincinnati, it's winter and we're looking at, you know, all these sugar and pineapple barons. Uh, winter trip, 4.2%. Again, it's a sour. I know I, I pump up a lot of local sours on this podcast, um, but a very good beer. And the sister beer to Summer Trip, another great um, beer that we featured on the show from BraxtonBrewingCompany.com. And go visit them again just over the bridge, their tap room and brewery in Covington, Kentucky, the home of the subject of today's show, 
John Immeluth of Cincinnati, Ohio, just over the river. Again, guys, thanks so much for rating and reviewing the show. We said we'd read a couple of reviews on the air. So this one from last month from the Art Fatties. Alex does an amazing job bringing Ohio history back into focus. Episodes are engaging with all sorts of guests who are not only knowledgeable but relevant to the topic. Alex keeps things moving nicely and has a great rapport with each guest. So if you're ever curious about Ohio's past, then please add this podcast to your rotation. Thank you so much. Um, Again, we've been getting quite a few reviews lately. Uh, We got this one from, looks like Mark, with a bunch of R's and K's. I think he's a DJ out in California. I always tell people I'm an Ohio boy, and somehow I end up in California for the last 30 years. This podcast rides with me to work. It takes me back to my Ohio history class at Edgewood Junior High, minus the spitwads and detentions. I love the storytelling as opposed to listening to silly DJs like me. So thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. Uh, and again, scroll down and, and on your iPhone, if it's iTunes or any other service, and give us a rate and review. We'll read it on the air on the next episode. Today we're talking about the history of the American invasion of Hawaii, the Kingdom of Hawaii. Hawaii was a sovereign, independent nation. And we're going to talk about how we did annex them. So Mili Kalikimaka, grab yourself a plate lunch. Merry Christmas. We're going where there's no bad days, except for a couple of really bad days in the 1890s. We'll talk about them today. It's episode 9, Ohio vs. Annexation. My interest in this story really started uh, a couple years ago when me and Miss Ohio V. The World took our honeymoon to Maui and to Hawaii. Uh, it's really similar to our guest Stephen Dando Collins, the Australian author's story about how he became fascinated with the annexation and overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Now, I started learning about this place, you know, kind of before and during and even after our, our couple of weeks in Hawaii. It's just a magical place. And, and Stephen is really a, a Roman and Greek history expert, uh, writer of many books, including his great new book about Caligula, uh, just came out this year. Really cool book, and we'll put a link in the show notes for that one as well. Um, but the story is so captivating, and it happened to Stephen when he was on a trip to Hawaii. No, exactly. Um, I've always had a fascination with Hawaii and uh, had uh, visited many times. Hawaii, uh, for a long, long time, was a, a go-to destination for Australian tourists. Uh, it's been overtaken by Bali these days, but it's still very popular with Australians. And... Um, in the 1980s, I stayed at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel at uh, Waikiki. Nice. And uh, one day I was walking down a corridor and I just happened to notice historic photographs on the wall and always being interested in things historic. I stopped to look at them and these were the portraits of, uh, of the Queen, Lilia Kalani, the Princess and the various other royal figures, King uh, Kalakau and so on. And I thought, what the heck? Kings and Queens in Hawaii. So this is the first I'd uh, known about it for my own interest, which is usually the, the starting point for mm-hmm. most of my books, um, I started to, when I got back to Australia, uh, started researching uh, the background. And so it was it just sat there in the back of my mind and in my research files for many years. Uh, and then um, working on another book, I stumbled on this reference to a fellow Tasmanian, Henry Waterhouse, who went to Hawaii. Yeah. 
And uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I uh, did a bit more research, only to find that he'd been involved in the overthrow of the very queen that I'd become fascinated in. So here were the two you know, starting points. And uh, in 2010, I was lucky enough to make contact with a, a senior Ali, uh, one of the members of the royal family. I asked if he'd be prepared uh, to help me with my research uh, because all the books that I'd read up to that point, to me, gave a very slanted uh, story you know, the, from the, uh, the white perspective. Mm. And um, so uh, he was rather wary to begin with. Uh, Francis Ching was his name. Sadly, Francis passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and he said, OK, well, when you come to Hawaii, um, look me up and we'll see what we can do. So my wife and I uh, set off for a three-week uh, research trip to uh, Hawaii and uh, looked up Francis. And we met each day and uh, I gained his confidence and his friendship. And he said, OK, you might want to go and meet this person and that person and I'll take you to places where holies, uh, uh, as they're called, foreigners are not allowed to go. So he arranged me to go to for us both, my wife and I, to go to the uh, the royal crypt and the, the vault where the kings and queens are buried, which is holy soil as far as native Hawaiians are concerned. It's not technically uh, American territory in, in, on Oahu. Uh, and uh, took me to the grandson of the former commander of the royal guard and, and so on. And um, so this really opened up uh, the story from um, the native Hawaiian perspective and uh, so I was hooked, and I thought, whatever happens, I'm, I'm going to write this story. The first Europeans to make contact with the Hawaiian Islands happens in 1778. English explorer James Cook and his ships land in Hawaii. Cook would actually name the islands the Sandwich Islands after the Earl of Sandwich. And Cook would actually be killed the next year by the native Hawaiians. Um, in 1820 is really when the Americans start to invade Hawaii, and you see it through missionaries. Coming from New England, they begin flooding Hawaiian shores into the ports of Honolulu and Lahaina and Maui. And I believe, you know, these men like the Binghams and the Thurstons, I think they did have the best of 19th century intentions uh, of converting people to Christianity. But within 78 years of their landing, their sons and their granddaughters would conquer Hawaii. It's these missionaries who do successfully convert um, thousands of Hawaiians they eventually, these missionaries would ban the hula because it was too provocative. Uh, I've been to a luau, and it's a pretty amazing experience, uh, even as a tourist. But we talk with our guest, Stephen Dando Collins, about the arrival of the American missionaries. So the original uh, uh, missionaries came from the U.S., uh, from uh, New England, and uh, uh, they were uh, across all denominations, uh, in the end, uh, Protestant and Catholic, they were welcomed by the uh, native uh, Hawaiians and by the the kings of the day, because that's the native Hawaiian way. You know, they are a very well, still a very welcoming people. Mm -hmm. uh, they did, and uh, they uh, native Hawaiians became very, very devout Christians, and uh, yeah, and and followed the the you know, so-called guidance of the missionaries. Sugar cane, sugar cane, and land. Cheap land. That's how the Americans got in, interested in Hawaii. And sugarcane was introduced into Hawaii in the 1830s and 1840s and quickly becomes the leading industry, uh, along with you know, pineapples as well. But the sugar barons begin moving in, and they're selling most, almost all of their sugar at first to the United States. And originally, uh, you know, Australia actually was one of their biggest clients. 
But as Stephen said, they began making their own sugar. We talked to our guest author, Stephen Dando Collins, about the importance of the sugar industry and the Native Hawaiians' disdain, their culture's disdain, for land ownership. We'll talk about the role of those two things in the eventual overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii. But the, the Westerners, uh, they all came via San Francisco, uh, and many were from California, the, uh, first, the, some of the first missionaries and then some of the first white settlers. And uh, they saw that Hawaii is the ideal place to grow uh, sugarcane. Once they'd managed to convince the king to distribute land to the settlers, uh, the Hawaiian philosophy was that you don't own the land, we were just the, they were just the guardians of the land. And so land ownership was totally alien to them. So when the uh, settlers and missionaries, particularly the missionaries, approached the, uh, the then king and said uh, you should d- distribute the land throughout uh, uh, to uh, all the people that live here, including uh, native Hawaiians, um, the king thought, okay, fine, all right. Um, and uh, so they promulgated a, a law where if you um, uh, applied, you could get a, a piece of land. But the native Hawaiians, because of their cultural belief that you're not allowed to, the, the ancestors would be unhappy if we you know, attempted to own the land. Very few applied. So the majority of people who fl- applied for, for land were the missionaries. And so they got huge tracts. And uh, they very quickly planted this to sugarcane. And then they found they needed workers to, uh, to plant and, and harvest the cane. And uh, native Hawaiians uh, were not particularly interested in this. They had their own farms and, and fishing interests and so on. So they then convinced the, the king to allow them to import uh, labor from um, Japan and China and also from uh, the, the Portuguese islands. Uh, cheap labor, uh, indentured labor. So um, uh, all this labor was brought in to, to um, cultivate sugarcane. So Hawaii very quickly became one of the major uh, sugar producers in the world. Our Ohio connection to the story, John Imaluth. He grew up in Cincinnati, he was born in 1853, and he moves to Hawaii at age 24. He took over a, a home furnishing uh, goods company called Sigelkin Brothers. He buys out the owner in 1881 after a couple years, and he changes the name to John Imaluth and Company. And by the late 19 or late 1880s, you know, the company had become Honolulu's kind of principal plumbing and home furnishing uh, business, their hardware, importers. And he gets into another other businesses. He starts canning pineapples, which we'll talk about, um, and becomes a leader in the business community. So he had a piece of that sugar industry, that fruit industry. And we ask our guest, Stephen Dando Collins, just about how the sugar industry grew. Uh, all the sugar produced in Hawaii went to the United States. And uh, it made uh, the sugar barons, as they were called, uh, who were mostly based in uh, in San Francisco, uh, but uh, uh, several of them were uh, based in uh, in Hawaii and and were missionaries. Um, they became very very wealthy, and they developed other industries as well. Uh, you know, the doll pineapple business and sure. so on. Um, so they had great influence, and uh, if the king wanted to borrow money, it would be uh, to the sugar barons, uh, either directly or via local bankers, that they would go, and so the, the uh, royalty in Hawaii became very beholden to the uh, uh, the sugar interests. 
The Honolulu Rifles are formed in the early 1880s. The Rifles are a military and social organization, all white men. Europeans, Australians, Americans. This would have been my first warning sign that a group was, you know, a group that would grow to 1,500 members, all armed, all generally anti-monarchy. This would be my first sign that something's afoot here. John Immeluth, our subject, our Cincinnatian, he's involved with the Rifles as a leading businessman, and it really is an anti-government militia. We talk about the rise of the Honolulu Rifles and their political sway, even in the Iolani Palace, the home of then-Hawaiian King David Kalakaua. So the Honolulu Rifles was a uh, a militia uh, of white residents of, um, uh, basically of Honolulu, but of the island of Oahu. And uh, they began to um, uh, resist the, the sovereign powers of the king. Now remember, Hawaii was then a sovereign nation, and it had a, a king, and it had a, uh, a, a parliament uh, with two, uh, two houses uh, elected by the people. And the majority of those elected at that time were native Hawaiians, so the power was still retained by the native Hawaiians. Right. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the white businessmen uh, were unhappy about this, so they formed this militia uh, as a sort of a... Uh, to, to, to back their demands... Uh, in Parliament and outside it, uh, for reforms, uh, basically to give them more power. And uh, uh, it it was banned at one time by, by the, the king, and then it was allowed to return. But it was, um, it was really a, uh, uh, an anti-government militia. the white business community had risen to such power in the kingdom of Hawaii that they're able to force a more restrictive constitution on King David Kalakaua and the people of Hawaii. Kalakaua known as the Merry Monarch, uh, but a bit of a pushover when it came to the, the things like what was called then the Bayonet Constitution. John Immeluth was a member of the Reform Party. He'd come from Cincinnati and within 20 years, he had really, not even 15 years, he'd become a leading businessman and he'd been calling for annexation since the 1880s. Lauren Thurston, a lawyer and leading businessman, he writes this list of demands and he turns it into a new constitution. And it was called the Bayonet Constitution. Yeah, the Bayonet uh, uh, Constitution, because it was ran through uh, under threat, under force. The king was, was forced. Um, all his advisors by that stage were... Uh, advising him to accept this this new constitution. The majority of his advisors were uh, white uh, local businessmen. Uh, a lot of them, uh, not even Hawaiian citizens. And uh, it, it deprived the Hawaiian, the majority of Hawaiians, of the vote. And this is why he, he resisted it for a long time. Um, they said, no, no, no. Uh, the, the whites said, uh, uh, those who vote should uh, be property owners. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, the great majority of native Hawaiians um, didn't own property or didn't want to own property, and uh, so uh, and of course the large Chinese and Japanese population. Uh, these were the the former 
sugar plantation workers who, after their contracts expired, many of them remained in Hawaii and then set up businesses, and there was a large and thriving, and still is, uh, Chinatown in Honolulu. None of these people uh, were allowed to... Were ex- they were all excluded from the vote as well. And so when this so-called bayonet constitution was ratified by the king uh, under pressure, it deprived uh, the vast majority of uh, people in the island um, of the vote. And this then allowed, of course, the uh, the white population to elect their um, their friends and cronies. It's hard to believe that these you know businessmen, these Americans, uh, wouldn't just chill. I mean, you're in Hawaii, you've been there, you're rich, um, but they wanted more power. They saw the government as ineffectual. They saw the entire monarchy structure as outdated. And they wanted more power for themselves. King David Kalikawa, uh, he has a sister that's next in line to the throne. And when Kalikawa unexpectedly dies in 1891, Queen Lili'u Kalani, Queen Lydia, she was known more colloquially, uh, Lili'u Kalani, she takes office and she immediately starts working to promulgate a new constitution. The native Hawaiians wanted her to rule for a number of years before. There's even some attempted coups that our guest Stephen Dando Collins writes about in his book and tells us about. But Queen Lydia, she takes the throne in 1891, and it's pretty clear that there's a new boss in town. There had been efforts prior to her, uh, prior to the king's death, uh, to get her onto the throne because because her supporters knew that she was a much stronger person than uh, King Kalakau. And um, so she came in and she had, had advised him, you know, to, not to accept the bayonet constitution and, and uh, not to be pushed around by the, the white population. But I think basically he just wanted to lead a quiet but luxurious life and um, anything for a quiet life. And uh, so um, and, and at one point uh, there is what was called the Red Shirt Rebellion when uh, a, a, a former supporter of, uh, of, the, of Lilia Kalani's uh, uh, Robert Wilcox leads this uh, farcical little uh, rebellion uh, to try and get the the king to uh, uh, to uh, end the bayonet constitution and go back to the original, the previous constitution, which restored rights to the native Hawaiians. And uh, you know, it it fell through with the help of the Hawaiian rifles that were uh, on a little rifles that, uh, that we were talking about. And um, uh, and he, uh, Robert Wilcox who was uh, part uh, Native Hawaiian had approached the Queen and said, uh, you know, if uh, we force the, the, the King off the throne, uh, will you take the throne? And she said, I'll be no part, I'll you know, take no part in any uh, any revolutionary act. Only if I'm invited by the Parliament to become uh, sovereign will I take the throne. So um, this little, little revolution in 1889 uh, fizzled uh, and uh, then Kalakaua dies and uh, finally Lia Kalani comes to the throne determined to show that she's much more um, uh, has much more backbone than her, her brother the, the late king As Queen Lilu Kalani begins to tighten her grip on power and try and give some of the voting rights and some of the other powers back to the native Hawaiians in 1892 you see the Committee of Safety formed by 13 white businessmen to overthrow the queen and end the monarchy. The name Committee of Safety is derived from the infamous Committee of Safety from the French Revolution. Immaluth, our, our subject from, Hawaii, uh, from Ohio today, he's a member. He's one of those 13 businessmen, along with Lauren Thurston from the Bayonet Constitution days. Um, he was kind of the leader. 
we talked to, to Stephen about the Committee of Safety as they plot the overthrow of the Queen. So the majority of them were either um, uh, were American-born or uh, born of American par- parents in Hawaii. Four of them were still American citizens, a couple of Englishmen, a couple of Germans, and the one Australian, uh, the Tasmanian uh, Henry Waterhouse, uh, I mentioned earlier, who uh, was born in, in Tasmania in, in uh, Hobart, the place where I went to school. And they were all uh, had uh, extensive business interests in uh, basically in Honolulu, but also uh, right around uh, the islands. Uh, some of them were involved in the sugar industry. Uh, some had hotels. Uh, one was a shipping magnate. So these are all uh, wealthy men. Uh, they basically uh, controlled the economy. And as we said, John Immeluth, I can guarantee you there's no other podcast out there about this little-known member of the of the coup, uh, the Committee of Safety, the coup group in 1893 from Hawaii. Uh, but we asked Stephen, because he does show up in the book, uh, which is how we found out about him, actually reading the book a second time. We read it while we were on vacation uh, and then again got it on Audible and listened to it again. Uh, but we asked him briefly just about uh, John Immeluth and his thoughts and his reasons for the overthrow. Yes, he was a member of the Committee, committee of Safety, and uh, he... Uh, he'd been in Hawaii for quite a number of years and was involved with the uh, with the rifles militia, and um, uh, was very much anti Queen. If there's a villain in this story, and there are there are quite a few, certainly one of them would have to be John L. Stevens, the American ambassador to the Kingdom of Hawaii, as ambassador under then President Benjamin Harrison in Ohio. And don't forget, we're next season, season five, and an election year. We'll be talking about the presidency and Ohio's presidents, uh, and including an episode we're doing about Benjamin Harrison. Uh, but Stevens promises to protect the Committee of Safety if they make their move. As the ambassador, he's kind of the leading American you know, uh, representative from the government. And he basically claims in the months and weeks leading up to the coup that he has their back. We ask our, our guest, Stephen Dando Collins, about you know, John John L. Stevens and his wish for an American-controlled Hawaii. And it wasn't just that they wanted power, they thought they could run the government better, it would benefit them. Uh, there was also a racial and racist component to all of this, as there usually was back in the 1890s. Now, the American minister, as they were called, the American ambassador, was a guy called John L. Stevens. And he hated the monarchy. He particularly hated uh, uh, Queen... Lilia Kalani, um, and as we know from his writings, uh, one of the reasons he hated her, well, two two reasons in particular he hated her. Number one, she was a, a female ruler, and he could not take the fact that uh, our country was ruled by a woman. And he's also very racially prejudiced. He he wrote quite despicable things about Lilia Kalani and, and members of her inner circle, called them uh, dreadful things, uh, you know, uh, you know, kanakas and you know colours, and would describe occasions when these uh, these savages would ha- hold their uh, their uh, uh, official receptions, and the whites had to bow to, to the Queen and so on. So he was very anti the Queen. Going back to the, by the way, you mentioned the Luau earlier, it was a religious dance, and uh, it was uh, reinstated by uh, uh, King Kalakaua, yeah. and the missionaries hated it, because they thought it was, with all these women swiveling their hips, uh, uh, they thought it was sexually provocative, so this is why the missionaries disliked it. And uh, John L. Stevens uh, uh, also hated the, the, uh, 
the, the dancing women. Um, so he had a great dislike for the Queen and the whole concept of uh, a monarchy ruling over uh, Hawaii and of monarchy in general. And as I write in the book, you know, there was a strong feeling throughout the United States during this period um, that uh, monarchy was a uh, was, was to be abhorred of any kind. And um, obviously, having had a, yeah, Americans having had a rather bad experience of monarchy uh, <laughs> a, a century or so before, so um, he was determined to see uh, Hawaii annexed by the United States. going into 1893 around New Year's the USS Boston was in the Honolulu Harbor and we spoke you know to our guest about the American military presence in Oahu it's part of the city and we hadn't taken over Pearl Harbor yet Um, but these these American servicemen are are really a major part of the city and its economy and they had been for years Uh, and as we talked to him it really wasn't unusual for an American warship to be parked in Honolulu Harbor. But it's Stevens, Ambassador Stevens, and it's the Committee of Safety, men like John Imeluth, who see the USS Boston as their ticket, their ticket to take power. Honolulu Harbor, as opposed to Pearl Harbor, uh, was a main stopping point for warships of the United States, uh, Britain's Royal Navy, and also the Japanese Navy. Uh, and uh, these ships uh, would come and anchor there for, for months at a time and then go off and do exercises and come back. And they were a major contributor to the uh, Honolulu economy, as you can imagine, with all the mm-hmm. crewmen coming ashore. And the officers' wives uh, even came and stayed in hotels for months at a time so they you know, could be with their husbands. Um, so it was not unusual for American warships to be anchored at, uh, in Honolulu. And it is the new year, 1893, January, when everything starts to unravel. Queen Liliuokalani, she begins to put together her new constitution. She puts it together in secrecy and calls a meeting of her cabinet with plans to announce the new constitution right after the meeting. People have arrived at Ioloni Palace um, to, to hear the big announcement. Nobody knew exactly what it was. She meets with her cabinet uh, and these mostly um, white men in her cabinet. They beg her to give them some time to consider this radical step. Uh, this radical step, of course, being reinstating the powers of the monarch um, and to allow votes from all Hawaiians, not just landowners, as we talked about. You know, a lot of these native Hawaiians wouldn't own land. It wasn't something that they were, they felt they should do or be allowed to do. Um, and thus, the Bayonet Constitution outlaws any non-landowner from voting. John Stevens, the ambassador, he meets with Sanford Dole. Yes, that Dole family the Dole Pineapple, the Dole Fruit Company that we still eat today, and Lauren Thurston, lawyer and original author of the Bayonet Constitution. The three meet, and they agree to attempt an overthrow. When they hear about this Constitution, um, they agree on January 14th, 1893. Stephen's job, the ambassador, was to request the Marines on the USS Boston and Honolulu uh, to come in from the harbor to send hundreds of armed soldiers to the capital. Um, It was said that they were there to protect American citizens, American property. But Stevens and the Committee of Safety, they had other plans. And the troops end up landing. They land, like I said, on January 16th. 
when this political hoo-ha broke out, when Queen Liliuokalani uh, tried to overthrow the Bayonet Constitution, constitution and bring in a constitution uh, uh, like that which had prevailed uh, previously, uh, giving broad rights to um, all people in Hawaii, uh, he saw the opportunity to, to involve the U.S. Navy. So he befriended the captain of the, the Boston, uh, Captain Wilts, and convinced him that there would, with the, the uh, arguments going on between the Queen, her cabinet, and the uh, white businessmen about uh, 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 removing the Bayonet Constitution and replacing it, uh, he convinced the, the captain that there, there could be a, a threat to American lives and property in Honolulu, and it would be in America's interests if the captain landed armed sailors and marines and stationed them in Honolulu. And uh, Wilkes bowed to the to the ambassador's uh, suggestions, and uh, on the 16th, as you say, he landed uh, uh, about 140, 138, I think it was, yeah. uh, marines and armed sailors, complete with a cannon and Gatling guns. And you kind of forget sometimes since Hawaii's you know been a state, it was a territory for some 60 years before that. It's important to remember that this is an independent country. The United States is not at war at this time. Uh, and the Marines are staging and they're marching on a foreign capital. They're uninvited and what easily could be seen as an act of war. Now, the Hawaiians on January 16th, um, there's a little bit of nervousness, but the hotels are still full of people. The soldiers have marched on town before. They could just be there drilling. Um, it's not seen as that big of a deal. But on January 16th, the soldiers land. People don't realize that the Hawaiian kingdom is on their final night the final night that they will be an independent nation. Queen Lilu Kalani does understand that. She's in the palace nervously talking to her advisors. She still hasn't been able to announce her new constitution. She hasn't gotten the cabinet fully on board. But little does she know, January 16th would be her last night as queen. And um, they marched through the city, uninvited, mind you. Now, the, twice before in Hawaii's history, there'd been uh, uh, disturbances uh, when and the king of the day had asked American uh, sailors uh, in the port at that time to uh, to land and help uh, uh, re-establish order. So, but that had been an, uh, an official request from the government when this had happened, and then uh, once order had been re-established, they had returned to their ship. This time, the sailors from the Boston land, not only without an invitation, but uh, in the face of. Uh, letters from the uh, Hawaiian foreign minister and the governor of Oahu saying, we don't need your help, thank you very much, we've got everything under control, uh, do not land. So in, con in contravention of this, and in fact uh, under international law it would have been considered an act of war, uh, American uh, sailors and marines are landed, marched through the uh, Honolulu with their band playing, uh, with children dancing along behind, thinking it, <laughs> local children thinking it uh, uh, very entertaining. Uh, and these uh, troops are stationed in Honolulu, but not anywhere near where Americans lived or where American businesses were established, but uh, across the road from the palace. On January 16, 1893, the plan begins to take shape. As the Committee of Safety and the Honolulu Rifles, they start moving their men into position, gathering supplies and guns, and moving into positions around the government buildings. Stevens gets his soldiers, the ambassador gets the soldiers into position, uh, even though the military has told Stevens straight up, we're not going to get involved. 
any further than establishing a presence to protect American property, American lives, to keep the peace. The Marines didn't make that announcement public. Um, and obviously neither did the rebels. The Committee of Safety does, doesn't make that announcement. The Queen's in the dark as to the U.S. Armed Forces' intentions. And it's really this bluff. They didn't have the backing of the United States military. Uh, maybe a few officers here and there. But the ambassador, you know, he, he got them onto shore with really false pretenses. And in Stephen's book, Taking Hawaii, how 13 Honolulu businessmen overthrew the Queen of, of Hawaii in 1893, the end of that subtitle says, in 1893, with a bluff. The bluff was that they didn't have the U.S. military's backing, except nobody knew that. The Ambassador Stevens had learned from the, uh, the uh, masters of the coup that their plan was to take control of a building called the Government Building. Today, if you go to Hawaii, or if you watched Hawaii Five O, the, the, the more modern series, the building which is supposedly the head police headquarters, it's called the Judiciary Building. Um, this, uh, it still stands across from the palace in, in Honolulu. Um, this was called the Government Building, and it contained the Parliament and the archives and the Treasury and so on. And the uh, uh, the 13 businessmen, the Committee of Safety, had decided if we secure that building, um, we will then declare ourselves in control uh, of uh, of the country. And uh, Ambassador Stevens, knowing this, uh, urges the uh, the sailors and marines to station themselves at the Opera House right next door to the government building, uh, thinking this will dissuade uh, the uh, the Queen's little army and police uh, from um, resisting the Committee of Safety's attempt to take control of the country. Uh, but fortunately, uh, there was a, uh, an officer, the officer in charge of the landing party uh, was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Swinburne, William Swinburne. And he was a very astute man. He went on to become an admiral and commander of the American Pacific Fleet in, in later years. And he could see that uh, the ambassador was trying to uh, sway events by using American military presence. And so he deliberately marched his troops to the outskirts of town and uh, had his men quartered on the property of a, an American uh, missionary. And uh, when the ambassador heard of this, he was furious because uh, he could see that out there they were going to play, have no influence over uh, the, the coup that was going to be staged and then within the next 24 hours. So he then, the ambassador, hired... Uh, a building called Arian Hall, right next door to the on the other side of the government building, which was being used as a Mormon church, hired it from its American uh, owner, and uh, had the troops, had the sailors and marines march back to station themselves there, right next door to the government building, so that they would intimidate the uh, uh, Hawaiian forces. Seventeenth, 1893. That's the day in Hawaiian history. D-Day for the overthrow of the Queen, Queen Liliuokalani. This never should have happened. Stevens calls his book, you know, saying that taking Hawaii with a bluff. You know, a couple of this, like I said, just never should have worked. It's incredible how easy it was. A couple members of the Committee of Safety who were the main plotters. They don't even show up that to the morning meeting as they put the plan in action. They need to have a new constitution they need to have all these documents drawn up lauren thurston the attorney he's among them he's supposed to be writing this new constitution and he doesn't show up he says i'm sick i can't join you there's a couple others who, who don't show up at that meeting john Immeluth is there our, our subject of today's show 
he doesn't lose his backbone. Um, but after the Queen's Guard, they brought in reinforcements in the U.S. They knew the committee's safety, that these rebels knew that the U.S. Army wasn't going to back them. Even though they had a Gatling gun and they had a cannon, um, they weren't going to fire on these Hawaiian, uh, you know, the Republic Guard. But the rest of the group, minus the one or two feigned illness, they moved forward. Emmeluth, and even more so the Aussie, the Australian Henry Waterhouse, one of the reasons that Stephen ended up writing this book, they decided to enact the plan anyways. They didn't lose their nerve. And go sick. That's Thurston and Castle, one of the others. Uh, he, the, the ship owner, and, and William Castle, one of the uh, early you know, leaders of, of the, uh, the Committee of Safety. Exactly. So all these others are losing their confidence and their courage because uh, they find that the, um, uh, the Queen's Guard... Uh, have uh, brought out their cannon and have got them stationed on the uh, upper verandas of the palace. Uh, the marshal of the kingdom, who is the uh, chief of police, has sandbagged the police stations, called in all reservists and special constables, which include uh, whites, uh, who are loyal to the Queen. So he's got uh, something uh, approaching 200 very well-armed men, also with cannon and gatling guns, uh, and he's, so he's secured the palace. He secured the police station, and he has told the coup leaders uh, quite directly that uh, he and his men, uh, particularly the native Hawaiians and the majority of his men, are prepared to fight to the last drop of blood to defend the queen and the kingdom. And uh, so um, the, the coup leaders, uh, uh, several of them, including Thurston, uh, have, as we said, have, have lost their courage. So William uh, uh, Henry Waterhouse, uh, to my great shame, a fellow Tasmanian, right. uh, it, 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 it doesn't lose his courage. And he forges on and uh, uh, holds meetings and uh, of the remaining coup leaders and said, we, we're going to progress, and um, uh, which they do. Uh, but if, if he hadn't uh, remained firm, it, it would have disintegrated that night. As the rebels begin their movements, there's a confrontation downtown that sparks the revolt officially. A police officer is shot in downtown Honolulu. You know, no one but would believe it, but this would be the only blood that was spilled that day. It was really was a bloodless coup. But one of the members of the rebels shot a police officer. He's we'll talk with uh, Stephen about what happened. But it did show the people of why a peaceful people that the rebels meant business. Not in in, in that coup. Uh, we had uh, one one police officer shot. And reportedly killed, but he was he shot in the chest. But he did survive. So we have uh, uh, we did have blood uh, shed. And th- uh, this the the coup was to take place at three o'clock on January 17, three in the afternoon. Uh, and at 2:30, uh, rebels are collecting weapons at a uh, uh, from behind a, um, a store uh, where the the weapons had been secretly smuggled in. And the police, uh, Hawaiian police, who were unarmed. Uh, were aware that something was up, and uh, as the uh, rebels go to drive out of the uh, the yard behind the uh, the store uh, in a wagon loaded with uh, uh, with uh, rifles and ammunition, uh, a policeman rushes up to them. Several policemen rush up to them and say, "Stop!" Now one tries to reach for the uh, the reins and is uh, knocked away. Another one stands in their path, and John Good, uh, one of the uh, uh, rebels. Uh, takes out his pistol, takes careful aim, and shoots the unarmed policeman down the street. And that allows them to escape to get their weapons to the armory, as it was called, where the, the rebels were assembling to be armed uh, for the coup. 
and uh, but fortunately the uh, the policeman did survive. Um, <laughs> but this this told everybody that the rebels were prepared to um, to take lives, and it it unnerved people on both sides, uh, and and but it gave resolution to others. You know, another a great book that we read called Unfamiliar Fishes by American author Sarah Vowell. You hear her sometimes on NPR. Uh, in her quirky writing style, she takes a trip to Hawaii and writes about the uh, the eventual overthrow of Queen Lulu Kalani um, in 1893. But it was a bluff. And this bluff was, you know, that's all it was. With the support of Ambassador Stevens and the perceived help of the U.S. military, the rebels take over some government buildings. And a standoff ensues. We ask Stephen, how did this bluff work to overthrow the government of Hawaii? How were they able to do it in just one day on January 17, 1893? Lieutenant Commander uh, William uh, Swinburne uh, told the rebels uh, that his troops would play no part in the, uh, in the coup and uh, they'd only been landed to protect American lives and property. And so much He was so de- much determined to show that he would not participate. He had his men stack their arms in the you know, courtyard and just had them drill. Um, uh, so there was no way that they were going to take part. But they, the, the rebels wanted the, the Queen and her, her supporters and the Cabinet, which had formed up behind her after initially opposing her, um, Wanted, wanted them to think that the U.S. military would participate on the side of the uh, the rebels, um, and the other key factor was uh, John L. Stevens, the American ambassador. He had told the rebels that if you secure the government building, I will, on behalf of the U.S. government, recognise you as the official new government of Hawaii. And uh, so the Queen at the palace is being kept appraised of what's going on. Uh, they had telephones in Honolulu at that time, so the re- phone's ringing and people are rushing to bring reports of what's, what's happened. After the rebels take over, take control of the uh, government building, with, initially with a handful of um, men, um, and they were very much outnumbered. Um, but finally, uh, she is convinced that the, uh, the American ambassador has recognised uh, the coup leaders as the new government and that with the support of the U.S. troops in Honolulu, Honolulu uh, that had not happened. It, it didn't happen until after the Queen surrendered, if you like. And uh, so this was the bluff. She was bluffed into believing that uh, the American ambassador had recognised the, the coup leaders and that the American, American military was, was uh, supporting the coup, and neither of which was true. John Imeluth is there when they, when they surrender to the rebels and to the Committee of Safety. He's sitting in the finance office um, around 8 or 9 p.m. when the commander of the household guard, the Queen's Guard, Palace Guard, comes in and salutes Sanford Dole. On the Queen's order, the Queen's Guard commander had come and surrendered his troops. The provisional government, though, they didn't take him as a, as a hostage. You know, Stephen points out in his book, you know, they didn't have the forces to, to handle such a large surrender. So he just told him, you know, thank you, uh, go about your normal duties. They didn't go get the queen. They just basically took power. They, they read some proclamations. Uh, and Queen Lydia, she decides to surrender. 
but she abdicates her throne to the U.S. government, not to this provisional government, to these rebels, to men like John Maluth and Sanford Dole, which was actually a pretty savvy move. We asked Stephen Dando Collins, you know, about the Queen stepping down. Her own idea and her, her, uh, her cabinet grabbed at it as, as, as a potential solution. Uh, they were hoping that the American government would uh, support her, um, would recognize that uh, the landing of the, the American troops had been illegal, was an act of war, and, uh, and her overthrow was illegal. Um, so uh, she was allowed to remain for the time being at her palace with her guards uh, as the, um, both sides sent emissaries to, to Washington to convince the American government uh, to, so the, the rebels wanted the American government to annex Hawaii and make it an American uh, protectorate, and the, the Queen supporters wanted the uh, American government to disavow the actions that had taken place and to restore the Queen. As the provisional government takes over, John Imeluth serves in, in a number of capacity after, after the government change. Although him and Dole really didn't get along, uh, Imeluth had called for the deportation of the Queen. She was a threat, and Emmeluth, he served as a member of the Advisory Council of the Provisional Government, the PG. He served as, a, you know, as the Council of State of the Republic of Hawaii. That's what it was called, the Republic of Hawaii. The Republic of Hawaii. Emmeluth serves in 1894-1895. And he wanted to annex her, but he's, he's overruled by the more moderate President Dole. Uh, Emmeluth, you know, he would make his money after with, with a number of other businesses. He owned the, Holland, uh, the Hawaiian Fruit and Packing Company. You know, they would make it said, uh, you know, read some of his testimony to, to the government when they came out to do a report that we'll talk about the Blount Report. Um, but Hawaiian Fruit and Packing, Emelu's company would make 10,000 cans a day. And it was, you know, considered the best, the best canned pineapples on the American market. And the case for, for who runs and who rules Hawaii it moves 5,000 miles east. It moves to the, the halls of the Capitol building in, in Washington, D.C. And President Harrison, who'd supported annexing Hawaii, but he had just lost in the election right before the, uh, you know, the coup, right? He loses in, in November of 1892. Uh, and as he's moving out of office, it's just too soon for him to take action. And he's out on March 4th, about six weeks after the coup. President Grover Cleveland is... is reinstalled his second unconsecutive term, still the only president to do that. Uh, and Cleveland sends Senator Blount, a, a Missouri senator, to Hawaii to interview all the main players and issue a report. The United States is not planning on annexing Hawaii. Uh, so uh, the Republican government of President Harrison was still in, in power when the uh, the rebels' representatives, led by uh, Thurston, uh, arrive in Washington. And there is sympathy from the, uh, the from the Harrison administration they quite like the idea uh, going back to uh, the 1850s American secretaries of state have been saying it would be a very good idea for us to take away uh, you know it's a good we're strategically placed and, uh, and you know, uh, so there was strong support for the idea of annexing Hawaii uh, but uh, there is an election and uh, Clover uh, uh, Grover Cleveland uh, is uh, a Democrat is uh, elected uh, president and the Harrison administration is is very close to endorsing the annexation of Hawaii but finally backs down and says no we'll, we'll leave it on the table for the for the next administration we'll let uh, let uh, Cleveland uh, uh, 
uh, take that action. And there was a strong feeling that Grover Cleveland would, would support the idea. But it turned out that uh, he was uh, uh, not at all enamoured with the idea. And uh, once Grover Cleveland became president, uh, he sent a, he uh, appointed a commissioner, uh, Blount, Blunt, as you mentioned, uh, a um, former uh, congressman, sent him to Hawaii to find out what had gone on and uh, to report, report back to him before uh, uh, the American government uh, took any action. We're going to read to you a, a statement from John Imaluth of Cincinnati uh, and then Honolulu businessman who's part of this overthrow. He's interviewed a number of times by the government in, in different reports about this overthrow as Congress does its oversight into the situation in Hawaii. And he said, 15 years of observation of the trend of political condition in Hawaii had before 1893 had already satisfied me of the necessity for intervention by some strong power if the Hawaiian race was to be saved from total political and physical annihilation, which in its avariciousness for the almighty dollar threw to the winds consideration of the ordinary safeguards and through its selfish methods, through the exploitation of the sources for securing cheap labor, gathered together a cosmopolitan element from the four corners of the globe and bringing with them all their customs and traditions, their moralities and immoralities, into close everyday contact with the natives of this soil. And don't be, you know, thrown for a loop there by Emiluth and his, you know, this was a common misconception, a common justification by Americans and other imperial powers, this idea that we're going to tame these savages, that us taking power is for, for their own good. You know, Emily served in, in, in a number of capacities, like we said, after the government changed for the provisional government. Um, but he's also, you know, he's there that day when the American flag is flown over the palace, over the buildings after the coup. Liliu Kalani tries to regain power, you know, at a later time. But that flag being lowered, we talked to Stephen just about that moment. And for many, like John Emiluth, it reinforced this idea of, you know, they're not rioting, they're not rising up. We're doing this to, to help them. See, this wasn't the Hawaiian way. Um, the Queen issued an instruction to her people, uh, remain quiet, don't demonstrate, we want no bloodshed. It's, it's not the Hawaiian way. And uh, uh, even when the American flag was raised in Honolulu and the Hawaiian flag was lowered, uh, there was a vast crowd and it was, it was applauded uh, by uh, Americans in the crowd that the native Hawaiians uh, made no sound. And uh, the supporters of the coup uh, the newspapers, the white-run newspapers in Honolulu remarked, well, and the native Hawaiians don't seem to be upset. They didn't make a sound when their flag was hauled down and replaced by the stars and stripes. Right. Uh, but the, but native Hawaiians in the crowd remarked on how many people were in tears. But because the Queen had said, remain quiet, make no demonstration, um, they obeyed her to the, to the letter. And, and this, likewise, once she's overthrown uh, and becomes a, a prisoner of the... Uh, provisional government, the PGs, as they were, as they were called. Um, again, she tells the people, you know, keep quiet. We'll, we'll, we'll trust in uh, the American government to do the right thing. And uh, so, you know, let the process play out. And so the people did. They obeyed him.
one of the things you get from, from reading these books is, well, why didn't they just take power over? They had the numbers. Uh, they could have found the weapons. They could have reinstalled the queen. You know, even though President Cleveland, he does not support the overthrow. There's this in-between time before annexation. Um, and he isn't going to send U.S. troops into Hawaii to start a shooting war with fellow U.S. citizens. He basically just says we don't support it, and he leaves it as it is. Eventually, the Hawaiians do rebel under Robert Wilcox. If you read, you know, Stephen's book or any of these books about the overthrow of Hawaii, Wilcox will come up all the time. Talking three or four different times, he leads rebellions before the coup, after the coup, um, and he leads a major rebellion in 1895. Uh, it's, it's in, you know, Emiluth was outspoken about carrying out the execution of Robert Wilcox, but we talked to Stephen about the 1895 attempted rebellion by the native Hawaiians in the name of their queen, Queen Lydia. Yeah, in 1895, there was a counter-coup led by Robert Wilcox. Here he is again, uh, this time with the Queen's support, tacit support. Uh, I'd write a, a full chapter on the, on, the, on this counter Yeah, which is a great, uh, great chapter. Oh, uh, it, yeah, it broke my heart <laughs> when I was doing the research because, you know, in theory, they should have won uh, and uh, overthrown the uh, provisional government and restored the, uh, the monarchy. But uh, there was, in, as in so many of these these types of events, there were well, there was infighting and jealousies. Uh, and the organisation fell down, and uh, uh, it, uh, it it the counter revolution was was quite bloody. There were five native Hawaiians killed, and and one white uh, provisional government supporter killed in the in the in the counter revolution, and um, three hundred. Uh, uh, Supporters of the Queen were arrested, and the, there was talk of them um, being executed. Uh, but fortunately, the American government put on pressure and uh, said, "If if if you want any hope of annexation, you will um, uh, the, the provisional government will act leniently toward these people." Uh, and they were released. And as we said, Hawaii is is declared the Republic of Hawaii by the provisional government, President Sanford Dole. And the U.S. takes no action, though, towards their annexation requests. They're still not a territory of the United States. And one of the big reasons they wanted to be annexed was these high tariffs. The Congress that really is called the McKinley Tariff, not before he was the president in, in, in 1890, but the Congress had enacted these, these high tariffs for foreign goods and such, you know, sugar. Or in Emily's case, uh, you know, these canned fruits and pineapples um, that really are driving up the prices uh, and if they become a territory of the United States, then they can ship these things for free. Uh, not to mention the other benefits of, of citizenship, I guess. But it was an event in Havana Harbor, February 15th, 1898. Again, an event some 4,700 miles away that sealed Hawaii's fate. 266 U.S. military personnel, or they die in Havana Harbor when their ship, the USS Maine, blows up mysteriously. Um, and the Spanish are to blame by the public. There's very high tensions um, in Cuba as the Spanish are putting down yet another revolt and using cruel methods. Uh, and the United States are on the brink of war, and then boom, kind of the 9-11 moment, uh, the Pearl Harbor moment of, of the late 1800s, the explosion of the USS Maine. These ships race to, to the Spanish colonies, and eventually, reluctantly, McKinley declares war on Spain. Now, it would turn out that, even though they didn't know it then, that the Spanish had nothing to do with the explosion. There was a coal fire 
that ignited the magazines that had this gigantic explosion that night on February 15, 1898. But ships raced to the Spanish colonies in the Pacific, places like Guam and the Philippines. And now Hawaii is imperative, more than just um, you know an island for sugar and, and relaxation and tourism, uh, but as a coaling station for their ships. And we'll talk much more in depth about the importance of the USS Maine and the Spanish-American War next season when we do uh, a giant, you know, probably a two-part episode on, on General McK- or President McKinley. But we asked Stephen to, to lay out, you know, how Hawaii is finally annexed and, and becomes an American territory. So um, uh, Grover Cleveland uh, comes out against annexation. And so the provisional government... Uh, the leaders decide we've got to hang on uh, and try again and keep working on uh, the, uh, the U.S. Congress uh, to get annexation. So they declare Hawaii a republic. And uh, Sanford Dole, of Dole Pineapple fame, uh, is, uh, becomes their president, un- totally unelected. Uh, and uh, so they uh, run Hawaii as a police state uh, until 1898, um, when finally... Uh, they win the ears of the McKinley administration, and um, uh, the Queen's supporters uh, continue to um, to lobby against uh, annexation. And it's it's looking it could go either way by 1898 uh, until uh, the Spanish-American War breaks out. We have the uh, explosion aboard the Maine in uh, in Havana, and uh, America declares war on on Spain. And uh, uh, congressmen who had been not very much in favour of the idea of annexing uh, Hawaii up to that point are convinced that it would be a very good idea to annex Hawaii to make it a, a major naval base to operate against Spanish positions in the Pacific, uh, uh, the Philippines and Guam. And so it's pushed through. So Hawaii is annexed, becomes a territory of, uh, of the United States. And in July 1898, the U.S. Congress, they passed a joint resolution to annex Hawaii to make it a U.S. territory. And as the U.S. embarks on, on a path towards empire. There's a great new history book this year uh, called How to Hide an Empire by Dan Moore. Uh, really cool. And talks not just about Hawaii, but places like Puerto Rico. And all these points uh, outside of the United States, uh, like a Guam, that are American territories that we don't consider these people American citizens. But they are. And they certainly consider themselves citizens. Um, but again, it's called How to Hide an Empire. I strongly suggest you go read that book. Again, only a little bit of it about Hawaii. It's really about how the United States is an empire, but not like the, you know, the English or the French or the Belgians or the Germans at this time in the late 1890s, the colonial period. John Emmeluth, our subject for today's show, he dies in 1910. His mission to turn Hawaii from a monarchy into a U.S. territory was complete. And just 61 years after the annexation of Hawaii, uh, it becomes our 50th state. We play this newsreel from that day in 1959 when we added the 50th star to the U.S. flag. It's made official at the White House. President Eisenhower congratulates the new congressional representatives of Hawaii before the simple ceremonies that remake the geography of the United States adding the 50th and southernmost state with a land area of six and a half thousand miles and a population of 600,000. During the 
multiple pen signing, the president is flanked by Vice President Nixon and Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn. Hawaii's half-century-old request for statehood is granted. Gentlemen, I think that uh, we shall recognize that this is truly a an historic uh, occasion because for the second time in within uh, a little over a year, a new state has been admitted to the Union. It had been a long time at any state, since any uh, state had been uh, admitted. So to have this uh, 49th and 50th member of our Union in such a short space is truly a, uh, a unique uh, experience. First Alaska, now Hawaii, and another new flag. President Eisenhower unfurls the banner that will fly from the White House July 4th next with nine rows of stars. Another new look for old glory. Shortly after taking office in 1993 on the 100th anniversary of the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii and Queen Liliuokalani on January 17, 1993, the U.S. government and President Clinton officially apologized to the to the native Hawaiian people. I'll read you some, some notes from this uh, formal apology declaration. Whereas on the afternoon of January 17, 1893, a committee of safety that represented the American and European sugar planters, descendants of missionaries and financiers, deposed the Hawaiian government. Whereas without the active support and intervention by U.S. diplomatic and military representatives, the insurrection of the government of Queen Liliuokalani would have failed. Whereas the Re Republic of Hawaii ceded 1.8 million acres of government and public lands of the Kingdom of Hawaii without the consent or the compensation to the native Hawaiian people. And whereas it is important and timely for the Congress on the occasion of the impending 100th anniversary of the event to express its deep regret to the native Hawaiian people. President Clinton signs that. And they apologize. Congress apologizes on behalf of the people of the United States. Um, this apology was obviously largely symbolic. At the time, and still today, it sparked what is a continuing Hawaiian sovereignty movement. It still lives today in, in, in Oahu and in Maui and other places. Um, sometimes you may see the Hawaiian flag flown upside down, which is, shows a nation in distress. We close the show with the Apology News Report and the words of one of the Hawaiian sovereignty leaders about the, how the world changed for them in 1893. At the White House yesterday, President Clinton signed a formal letter of apology to the people of Hawaii. He was apologizing on behalf of the U.S. government for the government's involvement a hundred years ago in removing the independent Hawaiian monarchy by force. What's one word you would use to describe what happened here in 1893? genocide that was their intent to make life hard for us in such a way it would cause our own destruction and that's what happened it's still happening it's more passive it's like genocide in paradise from garfield's tomb to the serpent mound from the big cities to the river towns first in flight making history there's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading 
Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today, obviously guys, is Stephen Dando Collins is Taking Hawaii, an awesome book. Uh, we've read it twice now uh, and look forward to reading it again the next time that me and Miss Ohio V. The World can get out to the Aloha State, one of my favorite places I've been in the world, maybe maybe my absolute favorite. Um, also, Stephen recently released this great book, Caligula, um, really interesting about you know this famous uh, emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, we just started reading it ourselves I'm not even a huge, you know, Greek and Roman classics kind of history guy. My dad was uh, nuts about that stuff. But this book, he wrote Caligula, really good stuff. We'll put a, a link in the show notes to that and pick up Taking Hawaii, his book. Uh, and thanks so much to Stephen for joining us. He's our first international interview of the show. So we've gone international. I thank him so much for, for taking the uh, the time to talk to, a, you know, talk to a American uh, it's so early in the morning for me, but very much appreciate it. Guys, we are back in two weeks. It'll be 2020 when we're back. We're talking about Ohio versus the Copperheads. We'll do our Civil War episode. And really, we'll be talking about the political uh, the political fights during the war um, and the Copperhead movement, basically a, a group of peace Democrats who become one of the most powerful factions in American government. We'll go to the home front of the Civil War. Uh, really a, a super interesting episode, and we'll talk about the life of Clement Vallandigham, an Ohio congressman, a man who would ultimately run for governor of Ohio during the war while he was exiled in another country. Lincoln threw him out of the country, and he runs for governor as a Democrat. Uh, really interesting story that we'll, that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So anyways, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and really be Happy New Year by the time we talk to you guys again. Just three episodes left in season four, and we're really looking forward to our next one, uh, Ohio versus the Copperheads. Got to give a special shout-out and thanks to friend and listener uh, Matt Crumpton, good buddy of mine. Uh, I broke out the ukulele on this episode and just <laughs> sent him some tracks that he, he put some keys and some other stuff on and give it that Hawaiian feel. So, again, really appreciated. Did it real quick for me, and uh, thanks to Matt for that. Again, you can email the show at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, Ohio v. The World Podcast. Uh, and we're even on Twitter at Ohio v. The World. So follow us in all those places. And don't be afraid to drop us a note. We talk to our fans and listeners all the time. Um, and again, it's so fun to bring you guys a show to know how many people are listening. We'll keep bringing it if you keep listening. So thank you so much. Happy New Year and go Bucks. My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. 
uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.